How are we doing, Revolution? We're doing all right. It's good to see you guys. Well, um, Justin is is next door in the nursery, so you'll want to be praying this entire service um, with the kids. And so you've got me for both announcements and the sermon. So got a little bit of an echo. Do you hear that? Um, sorry, I'm kind of picky about that because it bothers me. A um, couple things. One, um, if you want one of the t-shirts, we have Revolution t-shirts. If you are a college student or are of college age, um, then the t-shirts are free. You get one free t-shirt, red or white. You take your pick. They're over there. Just see me um, afterwards. Right afterwards, I'll go over there. We'll get your size. We'll get you all that taken care of, all right? So that is one. Um, If you are not college age, you want a t-shirt, they're just 10 bucks. And that's just really kind of covering our costs, all right? Katie Reed did the design, and um, Nate Wolf, who's got a company called Rise Above the Hate, did produce the shirts. And so we've got those if you want them to help us kind of push revolution out there because we really want to reach people who are not being reached, all right? And so that's where we're going with that. Now, um, other than that, keep praying for one, the East End. That is a ministry that we've got two guys or uh, two guys in two houses over there. So four guys all total, if you can follow all that. And so over there in the East End, they're in there reaching out to people all the time. Be praying for them because they'll be the first to tell you they have no idea what they're doing. But most people who 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 are kind of fl- who kind of just dropped in to be missionaries in an urban area really don't know what they're doing. But just keep praying for them as they reach out. What we are hoping for and praying for is nothing short of revival in this area. And we are reaching out to, you know, those people who don't, can't necessarily tithe, even though if you've got the resources to tithe, we'll take it because we got to pay our rent and we got to pay our utilities. Um, you know, I don't take a salary. Um, Ryan, Justin, none of us get any money out of this. It all basically goes back in to stuff like t-shirts. Um, so, you know, it, but if we would appreciate your help with that, if you can, the that's on the way out. If you can't, don't worry about it. We are just glad that you are here. So let's pray, and then we're going to jump into the Gospel of Mark. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have given us this this place. It may look like a scene from a horror movie, but it, you, you're keeping it up, you're keeping it together, you're keeping the lights on so that we can continue to preach the Gospel and grow closer to you. I pray for everyone here. I pray for your spirit to be here tonight, and that we may learn and worship you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Let's jump into the Gospel of Mark. I believe if you've got a blue Bible, which by the way, if you do not own a Bible, or if the Bible you have, it just you just don't dig it, it you can't read it very easily, that Bible is yours to keep. You can take that with you. We're going to be on page 605, I believe. Uh, we're looking at Mark 8 today. Mark 8, 27 through 37. We're going to polish off the 8th chapter of the Gospel of Mark. We'll move on next week to Mark Nine, right? 8.27. If you've got your own Bible, 8.27. Blue Bible, 6.05. I believe it's 6.05. Is that right? Cool. All right. Let's read it. Uh, Jesus and his disciples left Galilee and went up to the villages near Caesarea Philippi. Uh, As they were walking along, he asked them, Who do people say... I am. Now, we're going to see this in a minute, that this is 
a, a little bit awkward. One, they're in Caesarea Philippi. The area of Caesarea Philippi that they are in um, is a place that where uh, pagan worship, anti-Christian, anti-Jewish kind of worship went on. In fact, this is kind of the area for the great god Pan um, where, they, where they used to worship. And in fact, many early Christians identified this as like a hotbed of like Satanism. This is a nasty place that he and the disciples are at. And they've got a, as you're going to see here in a minute, they've got a crowd following them, right? And so they're just walking along, and typically what happens, if you're a Jewish rabbi, um, you know, you don't ask questions. Your students ask questions of you. You walk along, and you're a holy man, and you're just kind of contemplating existence and deep things, and your students are like, hey, what's this about? Hey, how do we do this? Hey, how do we pray? How do we do that? And then the rabbi would respond. Here, with a crowd following them, Jesus turns around and looks and goes, who do the people say that I am? Now, since he's a controversial figure, this is probably a little bit of an uncomfortable moment because there are lots of people and they're saying a lot of things. Verse 28. Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say you are one of the prophets. Now, they're not... Jews didn't believe in reincarnation. What they're saying is, you're like John the Baptist. In other words, you're one of those guys out there working outside the system and you're calling the system back to its original vision. They say, well, some say you're Elijah. In other words, there was, the, the, the belief was that the prophet Elijah would return. And if you've read the Old Testament, you know the prophet Elijah does not die, but is actually taken up to heaven in a chariot of fire alive. And so they say that he would return that way one day. And when he returned, he would call the Jewish people back and prepare them for the coming of the Messiah. And they says. Others say you're one of the prophets. A prophet is somebody commissioned directly by God to go speak for God. I know we tend to think of prophets as people who like zone out and see the future, but that's not what prophet means. A prophet in Hebrew simply means you are chosen by God. God says, go tell them this. And they go and say, God said this, and you go home. That's all a prophet does. So notice what they're saying. The crowds are going... Uh, maybe he's like John the Baptist. Maybe he's like Elijah. He's going to prepare the way for the Messiah. Maybe he's like a prophet. None of them are saying he is the Messiah. None of them are saying he is the Christ. This is despite the fact that he's literally like throwing demons around. He's healing people of incurable diseases. He is feeding people, drawing food out of the air. And everybody's just like, well, you know, maybe he's like something we've seen before. And then he asked them, who do you say I am? And Peter replied, You are the Messiah. It's the first time this has happened. Where somebody has verbally said this. Now other people have shown their faith in Jesus Christ. Typically non-Jews. When they grab onto the edge of his robe, that's a way of saying, I think you're the Messiah. But this is the first one anybody stood up in public. Remember, there's a crowd within earshot, as we're going to see. And he says, You are the Messiah. This was a brave... Now, Peter gets a bad rap, right? I love my, I love my boy Peter. He, he, gets, he gets a bad rap. Peter's always yes and no. He's always back and forth. We see all Peter's faults, you know, that when we go through like Acts and stuff. But Peter is also the same guy. I mean, we say, oh, Peter denied Jesus three times. Okay, yes, he did. But he was also the guy that when the Roman soldiers come to arrest Jesus, he's the one who pulls a sword and goes, let's go. Now, you pull a sword, a sword, in front of the temple guard right? It probably is not going to go well with you, right? This is like going into like Detroit 
midnight, worst part of town, with a fist pack and going, oh, I can take anything. Oh, you're not going to last five seconds, right? But Peter's willing to stand up and do that. Peter gets a bad rap. Peter is willing, in other words, when he does that, Peter's saying, I'm willing to die for you. He doesn't completely understand Jesus, but he's willing to die for him. And Peter's the one who stands up and says, you are the Messiah. Verse 30, but Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. And then Jesus began to tell them that the Son of Man must suffer many terrible things and be rejected by the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. He would be killed, but three days later he would rise from the dead. As he talked about this openly with his disciples, Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him for saying such things. You ever think Peter looks back on this and thinks how stupid he was to try to tell God what's what? Jesus turned around and looked at his disciples, then reprimanded Peter. He says, get away from me, Satan. He said, you are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. Now, Jesus does not believe his man Peter is the devil. The word Satan simply means one who opposes God. He is saying you are opposing God by doing this. He is, he is basically tempting Jesus. Now, Jesus overcomes any temptation. We see the temptation Jesus has in the garden not to go through with his mission. And Peter's saying, you can't do that. Messiahs don't do that. This is one of the reasons why Peter does deny him, because he does not understand why Jesus would be arrested. Because when he says Messiah, he's thinking everything he has been taught from a kid, from the time he's been from a kid, he has been living under Roman occupation. Peter does not know anything but Roman occupation, foreign occupation. That is all he knows. And so he's growing up with that. And from the time he says that the Messiah will be here one day, the Messiah will be here one day, the Messiah will be here one day, and when the Messiah comes, he is going to lead us against the Romans. We're going to kick them out, and we're going to have our country again. And this is what he thinks. So when Jesus says, I'm going to hand myself over to the Romans, and the Romans are going to torture and kill me, no, 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 no. That's not how this goes down. That is not what is supposed to happen here. And Jesus says, stop it. Stop it. And, and the Greek in here, in the Greek, the tone is really emphatic. So he's, he's raising his voice, right? It's one of those awkward situations. I travel a lot, and I meet with people for my, my day job. You know, I, I help you know, raise money for, for a Christian ministry, and I, so I travel and I meet with people a lot. And when you meet with people who give you money for ministry, that means you take them out to dinner a lot, right? I don't know how many times I've been to like a cheesecake factory or something like that, and then some couple has it out, and they're not waiting until they get to the car. One of the two is just like, we're doing this right here, Right? And as noisy as the Cheesecake Factory is, right, when like a 25-year-old couple starts in at each other and the voice is raised, everybody's like, oh, right? You're like really staring at the strawberries on your cheesecake and you're just kind of like, concert, this is the only thing in the world. They don't exist. They don't exist. Ba-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, right? Unless you're me. I stare. I get bored easy. I'm like, oh, man, this is a show. <laughs> come on, come on. Throw the drink, throw the drink, throw the drink. You know, hardly ever happens. But it's embarrassing. So Jesus is raising his voice. There is literally a crowd there who's going to see him in a minute. And he's raising his voice and he's screaming at him, get behind me, Satan. And they're all like, whoa. Verse 34. Then calling the crowds to join the disciples. See that? The crowds are right there. These people are just, just hundreds of people are following them around. 
And he said, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross, and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, the gospel, that Jesus died in your place for your sins, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is there anything worth more than your soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my message in these adulterous and sinful days, the Son of Man, that's Jesus, will be ashamed of that person when he returns in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. In other words, he comes back and says, you're not mine. You're embarrassed of me. I'm embarrassed of you. We're done. Now, there are a couple things I want to hit here. Jesus is walking along. He says, who do they say that I am? Who did they say? I always wonder who they is, don't you? You ever hear that? Well, they say, and you're like, who's they? When Ryan and Justin and I started Revolution, um, literally within a few weeks of announcing it on a blog, we were hearing, well, they say. Right? I'm like, who's they? Well, I'd rather not say. Right? And, and, and so, you know, we put this up here that we're going we're gonna to start this church where every, anyone and everybody is welcome. The music's going to be pretty loud. We're going to try to really dig down deep into the meaning of Scripture. We're going to try to have some deeper theology. We're not going to do the how-to sermons, the how to raise godly kids, or how to, how to have a good marriage. We're not really going to focus on that. We're going to focus on what the Bible means, who Jesus Christ is, who God is, what we're supposed to do in response, and that's what we're going to do. And, and, and the next thing I know, it's like, you know, well, they say. They say. They say you guys go into bars. Yes, we do. They say, you're a cult. No, we're not. Do you see anybody here wearing, like, track suits? <laughs> talking about when the comet comes, you know? Nobody's in a cult. For sakes, you know? Nobody out there selling flowers. I mean, there's not. It's, come on, right? And, and so you had all these things, these, you know, they, they say, your preacher doesn't believe this, they preach that. Sometimes they're right, sometimes they're wrong. And I'd be like, who is they? The Bible says if they are Christian and they got a problem with me, they need to come to me and we need to talk. Never happened. Never happened. And so they say. They say, they say, they say. And I was like, what do you say? They say is an easy way out. You know, it's, it's awkward, but it's still pretty easy for Jesus to say, what did they say? Because you don't have to own it, right? That's just, I heard this, I heard that. Okay, whatever. But when he turns around and says, what do you say? And you've got to stand up and own it, right? You know, one of the things that we have insisted on here is this. I, I've worked at many churches. You know, I didn't become a Christian until I was 25. 
but by the time I was 28, I was, I was working um, pretty regularly in churches. I worked churches in Texas and in New York and in West Virginia and, and, and here. And I don't know how many times somebody would come to me and say, I want to be a Christian, I want to get baptized, but I don't want to do it in front of people. I get nervous. Can we just do this like, like on a Saturday afternoon? Just like me and my family, right? And I got in trouble with a couple of churches because I would say, no, you can't do that. I'm not doing that. And they would be like, well, why? What's the big deal? I said, look, this is not a magical rite, okay? This is a church, not Hogwarts. This is not, you know, I get this right, I use the right tone, I get the right connotation and everything works. Baptism is not something magical. Baptism is a public declaration of saying, I say. Baptism is standing up, signing your name and saying, I say Jesus is Lord. In front of everyone. And everyone is there to hold you accountable. That's the point. It's for you to stand up, own it, sign your name to it. State publicly, I follow Jesus Christ. I'm a Christian. It's a point. One of the main points of baptism, right? But standing up and saying, I'm a Christian, saying Jesus is the Messiah, getting rid of all the they's and all that kind of stuff. That's just the beginning. That's just the beginning. Like Peter, you're going to get stuff wrong. When I first went to seminary, and I did this really badly, I picked the seminary I went to based solely on scholarships. Right? Now, I don't know why I did that, because I wouldn't like do that for like law school. Right? When, when I started to apply to law schools... You know, I got really snobby, really, really snobby. And my wife rightly, like, called me out on it. It was like, University you know, Ohio State was going to give me a full scholarship. The University of Kentucky was going to pay me, and that's God's law school. <laughs> but then I got an acceptance letter from an Ivy League law school. I'm like, oh, well, I'm going there. They weren't going to give me anything. In fact, they were going to, like, charge me, like, stuff. I will pay off. Look, they will put me in the ground. I will still be paying student loans to Cornell, right? Because it costs so much. But I was thinking, well, I'm going to go to the best law school. But when I picked seminary, for some stupid reason, it was like, well, they, you know, want to, you know, charge me 30000 That costs 20000 This place in West Texas I'd never heard of, free. I like free. Honey, we're moving to Texas. And we spent our honeymoon driving to Texas. She's still trying to forgive me for that. You ever been to Texas? Right? And so I go, and I had no idea that the seminary I was going to was really weird. It was in transition. It went from being like a sectarian fundamentalist place where they believed they were the only ones going to heaven to being a really, like, progressive place where, like, Everybody was going to heaven. They like swung from one branch to the other, right? And I didn't know anything. Even though I'd grown up a preacher's kid, I didn't know. I, these people, like I had professors who went to Harvard and Oxford, and they're saying, you need to believe this, this. I was like, oh, okay. 
You went to Oxford, right? I barely graduated from Wheelersburg. I showed up graduation. I didn't know if they were going to let me out. Yeah. Apparently, sleeping through calculus will not help you graduate. Not that I've ever used it since. And so, I had all these weird beliefs, and I fell in with this movement called the emergent movement and all this other kind of stuff. And I spent a couple years in that, and I, I finally found that to be really empty. And so, later on, I had to, all the people I'd learned to, like, look down upon when I was in seminary, because I thought they were simple-minded and all this other kind of stuff, and they weren't as sophisticated as these scholars from Oxford and Harvard were and all this other kind of stuff. I started to realize, ugh, those unsophisticated guys make sense, and, and they're probably right, and ah, that was really painful for me to, to say that for years I was wrong, and I needed to turn my back on that and, and, and move away. I was wrong about how I looked at Jesus, but I was. And I'm still learning. Every single day I'm learning. I've been doing this series at Christ Community Church on apologetics, and, and this, I've learned so much that because where I thought that I, I knew this or that, and I started to dig in, so I was like, oh my gosh, I, mean, I got that wrong. And that's what it's like to follow Jesus. Is Yes, you stand up. And you go through, and, and you should be baptized. If you haven't been baptized, you should, if you want to be a Christian. And so you do the public thing. You sign your name. You quit saying, well, some people say Jesus is this. Some people say Jesus is that. And you stand up and say, I say Jesus is the Messiah. And you sign your name. But just like Peter, you're going to get that wrong. You're going to have ideas and visions, the way you look at Jesus, they're going to be completely and utterly wrong. And to truly grow, you have to lay all that before God. You have to lay all that before people. This is one of the reasons why you need church. I hear this all the time. Why can I just be a Christian? Why do I have to go to church? Because you need to be challenged. Because by yourself, the view you will come up with of God and Jesus will look a whole lot like you. And what you want Him to be. And that's why you need to go to church. That's why you need to study. That's why you need to listen to people. That's why you need to be challenged so you can really see that, oh, maybe I got that wrong. And part of that growth process is repenting on that, saying, I'm stupid about that, and you move on. And one of the things you will learn is this. Jesus turns from his disciples, looks at the crowd, and says, if you want to follow me, you give up everything. You give up your entire life you give it to me or you can't follow me. And that's the toughest one we all have to learn because all of us want to hold on to something. Right? Heard a preacher say every single person, I don't care if it's Billy Graham, has some dark, unevangelized corner of their life and they do not want to let go of it. Right? For me, you know, when I first became a Christian, I didn't want to go to church. I thought church was boring. I didn't want to hang out with Christians. I thought they were too stuffy. They didn't have a good sense of humor. They didn't watch good movies. They didn't listen to good music. Couldn't tell them funny jokes. Didn't want to watch anything with Kirk Cameron in it. I just didn't. I mean, I just, I just got, man, I don't want to buy into all this. And so I go in, I didn't, I, so I go in, I was like, well, Jesus saved my life, so I guess I got to go in. And I go in, and I quickly realized that whole culture, Christian culture thing, 
was, had almost nothing to do with actually being a Christian. And what I eventually learned was even that, in fact, a lot of Christianity has nothing to do with being a Christian. Because here's why. Too many churches do this. I'm not picking on churches because this is tough. We struggle with this as well. They send the picture that if you want to be a Christian, all you have to do is this. Um, have an altar call or people raise their hands and say they want to invite Jesus in their life. You do the baptism thing and then you just try to behave. Right? Say a little prayer. Don't get drunk. Don't commit sexual sins. Watch your mouth. That kind of stuff. Does that sound like follow me and deny everything? It kind of just sounds like a self-help, 12-point plan to be more successful, to have a better you, to have a better positive outlook or whatever. That's not what Jesus is calling us to do. He's saying, it's everything. You give up everything. And I struggle with that. I don't know about you. I struggle with that every day. Because now it's not not so much the Christian culture thing. I've learned to just write that off a long time ago. Even though I met Kirk Cameron, he's a nice guy. I'll give him that. I'm still not watching his movies, but he's a nice guy. What I struggle with now is this. God called me to plant a church in Portsmouth, Ohio, and that means that you have a lot of broken people, a lot of people struggling to hold on to their life, whether it's because of sobriety or it's because of relationships or it's because, you know, they came from a really jacked up home and they're just just hanging on with a white knuckle grip to their life. And that means they need a lot of pastoring and I like to be left alone. Right? I just want to watch ESPN, drink my vitamin water, Right? And be left alone. And God won't let me do that. And that's nothing. That's nothing. That's just the tip of the iceberg. That's not what he's calling us to. He's calling us to a lot more. When he calls you to stand up and sign your name and say, I'm a Christian, he's saying, you are either all mine or you are not mine. And there is no in-between. You give me everything, you give me nothing. And he warned people about this. He said, count the cost. No one can follow me. He turns around and looks. You put your hand in the plow as he put it. It was an agricultural society. And you start to move forward. You can't look back. You go, you go with me or you don't go at all. You give it all. I struggle with that. I don't know about you. Because I don't want to give up my money. I don't want to give up my time. I don't want to give up my comfort. About, was it last May or so, I got sick. Um, I thought I had cancer again. That's how I became a Christian when I was 25. So I had a cancer scare. I, I, they thought I had cancer again. And I went through the surgery. And 
I got through that, and then I got a, a post-operative infection. And the infection wouldn't go away. And I spent months on the sidelines. Um, Dunham filled in for me for a long time. And I spent months, literally months, lying on my stomach in pain because the way they tried to treat the infection was try to burn off the flesh. And I'm allergic to painkillers. I don't know if you know what it's like to be burned on a regular basis, but it sucks. And I was in a lot of pain. I was sitting there and I was just like, I was doing a lot of praying and I was just like, I don't understand this. And finally, God just kind of really grabbed hold of me and was like, what am I asking of you? You're laying in a heated home watching Netflix constantly on your couch sucking down $5 in vitamin water a day. So what? You want to know suffering? Look for suffering. And so I started, I jumped online. I started reading about martyrs, real martyrs. Not people who are having a hard time, but I mean real martyrs. People who have died or suffered greatly for the Christian faith. I started to read that because it really started to remind me of what a wuss I have been. And how little I've really given to God, even though I've been ministering for him for 14 years. And this past week, I was reading about this guy in Vietnam. So, for those of you who didn't live through the 80s or just now watching the Americans on FX, we used to have these people called the Soviet Union. And we did not like them. The Ruskies, the commies, right? Seen Rambo? That's who he's fighting always, right? Okay. So, in Vietnam... You had the North Vietnam beginning in, after World War II began to slowly become communist. Then there was a revolution. Then it became Marxist. South Vietnam resisted. There was a civil war. They split. And there's this guy who became a member of the Communist Party in 1965 as a young guy. And they send him off for training. I don't know if they send him to China or, or to the Soviet Union, but they send him off for like training and doctrination and, and, and Marxism and all other kind of stuff. And then he comes back to Vietnam. And after the war had ended, after the United States pulled out, you know, and I think it was 75, and we got out of there, he comes in, he becomes an assistant district supervisor. They, they give him like a, a couple of villages to oversee uh, for the Communist Party, the Communist regime in South Vietnam. And so he goes in there. And what had happened was because South Vietnam had remained fairly free throughout the, the Vietnam War, there were, and, and because there had been a lot of Americans there, there were Christian churches in South Vietnam. Technically, they were legal, but officially, they were really kind of smacked around. And one of his jobs was to watch the Christians and make sure they didn't evangelize, they didn't do anything wrong, all that kind of stuff. And so part of his job is to learn about what these Christians do. So what does he do? He starts going to their church services and listening in. He starts to listen to the radio broadcasts that Voice of the Martyrs are, are pumping in, you know, across the border. In, and he starts to listen to all this, and lo and behold, he becomes a Christian. Monitoring Christianity and the gospel makes him a Christian. So he becomes a Christian, and he begins to 
go to these church services, even though evangelizing was illegal. He'd been evangelized kind of the back door, and he starts to go in there. And then he starts to realize, as he starts to read his Bible, he gets a Bible that he's supposed to be evangelizing no matter what the government says. So he starts to share the gospel with his coworkers. And some of them eventually say, look, you've got to stop this. He says, I can't stop this. You, you don't understand what I've learned. I have to do this. And so eventually they take his job away from him. So they take his job away. Then they take his house away. They took it. You know, they said, you stop or you're going to take your house. They took that. They took all his property. Then they took his life. They put him in prison. They put him in a South Vietnam, Vietnam prison. Seen locked up abroad? Think that and nastier. They sentenced him to 15 years for evangelizing. So he's in the prison. He's such a model prisoner that after eight years, eight years, the guards go, I tell you what, you can go outside the gates and do your work. He had to do hard labor every day. They were like, we're not going to watch you anymore. You're a good prisoner. Just go do your work and be back in time, you know, for bed. And he did. He didn't take off. He didn't run. He started to go. And people started to smuggle Bibles in to him. He kept them under his bed. And one day, I mean, he starts, the guards start to like him. They start to talk to him. They start to trust him. After eight years, they began to talk. I said, why are you here? Well, because I was a Christian. I was evangelizing. What is Christianity? What is, we've heard it's a bad thing, but what is it about? And he says, well, I actually have a Bible here. You're probably going to confiscate it, but let me read it to you. And so all the guards began to come around. He would read the Bible to them. The guards literally began, the communist guards who, who, who were there, to keep him in prison for being a Christian, come and start listening to him read the Bible every night. And in fact, when he first opened the Bible and started to read, they were like, after 15 minutes, like, how long does this thing go on? He's like, this is going to take a while. It's not a little book. It's going to take a while. I'm like, okay. They started to come back every night. He's just going from like Genesis to Revelation. And the guards are just, they're just sitting there listening. And eventually the guards become Christians. And then the, the, the camp... You know, commander finds out about this, yanks all of the guards out of there, sends them out, which does what? They go out and start making Christians. And they bring new guards in. And they keep smuggling Bibles in to him. They smuggled in six Bibles. They took five over all those years. And a whole new bunch of guards would come in and they'd begin to trust him and he'd start reading to them and they'd hear the gospel and he'd make them Christians and then the, the government would get mad and they yanked those soldiers out and they put new soldiers in and the whole time they're running a frigging evangelistic society. The government has, doesn't realize all these, all these new guards are saying they're becoming Christians. All the old guards are going out and making new Christians. Finally, they let him go. And they said, aren't you mad? He had a family. He didn't get to see... You know, he saw his wife every once in a while. She, would able to, she had some visitation after, after a while, but she, he didn't see his children. He didn't see, and they said, after he got out, aren't you angry that you spent all that time in prison just for being Christian? He says, no. It's what God wanted me to do. It's where he wanted me to be. And I got to make Christians doing that. And they said, how do you keep such an attitude? He said, and this is funny, he asked the interviewer, he goes, don't you know what Jesus did for you? Don't you realize how sinful you are and, and that Jesus took all that sinfulness upon himself? Don't you realize he died for you? Don't you realize that you have paradise? 
How can I be angry about that? I read that and I realized that's a guy who signed his name, right? That's a guy who stood up with everything he had and said, you are the Christ. What about you? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this little church in the middle of nowhere that we can come together and that you somehow use this that you forgive me for all the complaints I've had about not being as comfortable as I want to be when you left your throne in heaven to come and live and die for me how dare I complain Why? I'm just glad that you have forgiven me for that you're working on me and you're pushing me I pray the same for everyone here. I have a sneaking feeling that a lot of people here have stood up and said, you are the Christ, but they haven't really understood what that means and they haven't really sold out. They haven't really reached the point like Peter did, who, though he said you are the Messiah, would end up denying you, but then when he truly understood you, he would go to his own cross and be crucified upside down, as history says out of loyalty to you. May we get to that point as well. Every single person here. And thank God for what, thank you for whatever circumstance that we find ourselves in. And seek to bring you honor and glory in it. In Jesus' name, amen.